Thank you, guys. On July 4, 1776, members of the Second Continental Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence in session at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Did you know that? Do you believe that to be true? How do you know that it's true? Dennis was the only one who was there. Is it true, Dennis? Okay. We were not there. How do we know that it's true? Hold on to that question. Let's pray. Father, we invite you in the power of your Holy Spirit to come now. Teach us, Lord. We want you. We need you. We love you. We're curious about you. Some of us want to believe in you, but we can't yet. There's something undone. I invite you, Lord, to come and this time and to visit us in truth and visit us in reason and visit us in a way that confirms what we believe to be true. We invite you to come now in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I have always had trouble not stating the obvious. You know, there are a lot of social situations that something's going on that you're not supposed to talk about. Do you know what I mean? Kind of the elephant in the room sort of thing, and you're just supposed to walk around it. I've always had a lot of trouble not stating the obvious. As a kid growing up in the suburbs of Los Angeles, I, was, I had an idyllic childhood. I just ran, played, did everything. My, my, my rule was I had to be in by the time the streetlights came on, you know, and that was it. And I was pretty much, pretty much gone all the time. And uh, I just loved it. I remember a lot of it, too. And I, I remember one thing that happened as an illustration of my inability to re- re- restrain from uh, stating the obvious. I, I remember in the back seat of the station wagon, sometimes the way back, you know, how many of you ever rode in the way back? Yeah, this is the back and the way back. Yep. And um, riding around and listening to my parents talk. And I, I didn't, you know, I'm, I'm a kid. I'm eight years old probably at this point, And I'm riding around. And, and there were, throughout the, throughout the streets, every once in a while, there'd be some guy sitting on a corner. And he had like a big bag with him. Like a gar- probably not a garbage bag even then. Just he just kind of had stuff with him, and it didn't make any difference to me. I'm eight, and my parents would always start talking about these guys, these winos. They would say, "Did you ever hear that phrase before?" And so they'd say, "Well, there's another wino, or whatever, you know." And I, th- I, I thought, "Well, there's a wino. I don't know what a wino is, but there's a wino." And I'd be driving, so that would happen. And then I remember, I remember as what were yesterday, there was a knock on the door. I opened the door, and there was one of those guys there. And he was probably asking for money, or can I clip your hydrangeas, or whatever, you know, for whatever. And I don't remember what he said to me, but I remember turning in the doorway and yelling, Hey, Mom, there's a wino at the door! I didn't know it was a derogatory term. I just thought that's what they were called. 
I have never been good at not saying the obvious, tiptoeing around stuff. And sometimes the, the Christian faith seems to pressure us into ignoring that which is obvious. It seems like it's not, not cool to talk about certain things, even though it's obvious, the, element, the elephant in the room, and uh, the things that are obvious that people don't seem to like to talk about. Things like, if God is all-powerful, then why does he allow Satan to exist? I mean, that doesn't even make sense, does it? But we're not allowed to ask it. Um, why? Why is it, according to Christianity, that it's the only one true religion? Why is that? It's like we, we, can, we can think it, but it's like we can't ask it. What about people in the world who live their whole life and never hear the gospel? Are they going to hell? Is that a good question? But we don't ask it because it's an elephant, right? Um, why do we keep praying for pe- healing for people when such a small number of people are actually healed? I mean, is, is that not an elephant in the room? I think it is. And these are elephants in the room of our faith. We often just kind of navigate around them. And uh, it can get crowded, though, can it, sometimes? It can get crowded with all those elephants in the room. So what do you do, so what do, you do when an elephant comes into the room? You invite him to dinner. You invite him to dinner. You say, let's, let's just sit down with these elephants. Let's unpack them. Let's see what these elephants are about. So today, I want to begin a seven-week series that I want to call Dining with Elephants. Let's call them out. Let's talk about them. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, the Bible says, Come, let us reason together. Let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're like crimson, they shall be as wool. Come, let us reason together. And then it says, there's going to be opportunity for forgiveness of our sins. There's a lot about the gospel presentation of forgiveness of sins that, that doesn't appeal to logic. And yet the Bible says, come, let's reason together. Your sins are going to be forgiven. So, come, let us bring our brains to this. That it is not necessary to check your brains at the door to be an authentic Christian. You can think. You can ask. In fact, you're invited to do that by the scripture. Come, let us reason together. Let's think about this. Let's use our whole brains in our approach to God. You know, we, we have two sides of our brains that do two different things. Our right side is the artistic side. Unless you paint by number, then you're using the left side, right? The right. <laughs> I told you, did you just raise your hand a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have a right side. That's the artistic side. That's the side that is conceptual. It's spiritual, if you will. It's, it's where we enjoy mystery. It's where we, where we entertain unanswerable questions. And then we have the left side. That's the data side. That's the, that's the analysis side. That's the side that does the math. It's interesting. I, I've known 
a number of musicians in my life, and I've known right-brain musicians who are just like, oh, no, let's just do this, and out it comes. And then I know left-brain musicians who are very mathematical, and that they, I, they can apparently read all those shape notes. All right? I have no idea what those dots on a page mean. Absolutely no idea. And yet, so we can approach the same thing from, from each side. The left side is screaming out for logic, some reason and some answers. And what we're looking for in this series, Dining with Elephants, is spending more time on the left side and trying to escape. Escape something that drives you left-brain people crazy in the church, and that's circular logic. There's a, there's a fair amount of circular logic from a completely left-brain perspective in the church. Circular logic is something that endeavors to answer the question with its own self. It's not something that's outside of that. When we're looking for something, something uh, in this series more logic-driven from an external point of view. So it, we're looking for answers to these questions that are analytical and that they don't even require you to have faith. They're just going to appeal to your sense of logic. Now, obviously, we need to have faith in order to walk with Christ. I'm not saying you don't. But I'm saying there are some of you here who want to believe and you want to release faith, but there are too many unanswered questions. There's, there's, there's too many elephants in the room. There's too much circular logic. L- let me give you a couple of examples of circular logic as we get going here. If you turn in your Bibles back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, there's a perfect example of circular logic that Christians love to use. The Bible says, all Scripture is God-breathed, or in some of your translations, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, you can stop right at the first part of it. All Scripture is inspired by God. Now, I could ask for a show of hands, how many of you, like me, believe that the Scripture is inspired by God? Okay. And there are people who approach this, and they're not there yet to believe it, and they say, ask you a question. Well, how do you know that all Scripture is inspired by God. And you say, well, it, well, it says so. It says so right here, right? It, say, it says right here. And then some people will even get pretty, pretty uh, passionate about it. The, the Bible says that the Bible is inspired by God. And while that's good enough for me, because I'm a person of faith, I'm already in the faith, that for somebody who's going, I'm not sure I'm there yet, That's not an answer, is it? That's circular logic to say the Bible is absolutely the inspired word of God because the Bible says that's what it is. It's circular logic. It is true that the Bible is the inspired word of God. I don't need you emailing me, so when did you start doubting that the Bible... That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that that argument doesn't prove anything. You have to be a person of faith and accept the Bible as the inspired word of God in order for that to be a good reason to believe that. So another example of circular logic is 
Today, I'm going to be talking about, are the, is the gospel record reliable? And one answer I've heard is, yes, the gospel record is reliable, is because of all the Old Testament prophecies it fulfills. And it does fulfill a lot. But that's another circle, isn't it? That's a, that's a proving itself with itself. I, I, I'm overjoyed that Jesus fulfilled the messianic prophecies. And I believe every one of them to be true. But to a person sitting outside or approaching this from the left side, that's not an answer. That doesn't mean anything. That just means that the Bible says about itself what it says about itself. Now again, do not email me saying, when did you begin doubting the messianic prophecies? I don't doubt a single one of them. I'm just saying we're going we're gonna to approach this series a little bit differently in, out of respect for those of you who are living on the left side going, geez, I sure wish I could connect with what you guys are saying, but I get too many unanswered questions over here, okay? So, right-brainers, it's not your turn. It's not your turn. I've been the pastor of this church for 23 years. It's always been your turn. For the next seven weeks, it's not your turn. All right? Um, This is going to be a challenge for me, this series, for three reasons. One, I'm a right-brained guy. I love the mystery. I love it when I read something and my left brain goes, this does not compute. I love when I'm reading the Bible and it goes, tilt. I love that because my right brain goes in, it's got to be God because I don't get it. <laughs> I mean, the second I, the second I think I have it figured out, I think I, I, haven't, I haven't encountered God. I don't expect to figure it all out. Um, so I'm a, I, I'm a right brain kind of guy, and it doesn't mean that I don't think. It just means that I don't think I'm ever going to be accused of overthinking something, okay? I'm, I'm good. I need a couple of reasons, and it's like, I'm good. Yeah, that's good. Can we go back over here now? Uh, so that's, it's going to be challenging for me for that reason and for some of you, which is the only reason I tell you all this. It's also going to be challenging for me and some of you because I don't need this series. I don't need it. I don't, I don't need it to be demonstrated to me. Now, that doesn't make me better than anybody. It just, it just means that I don't really need this. I don't need evidence. I, I don't need evidence to be in love with Karen. I mean, if I think about it, I could make you a list. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. But I don't. I could tell you the great things that she does and the food that she cooks and that I've almost never folded a single piece of laundry. I know. It's not a chauvinist thing. I just never learned how to do it, so I don't know why I should if she's willing, right? I, I was realizing the other day, this might be too much information, but I've never cleaned our toilet in, our, in the house that we've lived in for 13 years. I've never, ever cleaned it, and they're always clean, mysteriously. So I, I could give you... <laughs> uh, uh, until now, you say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't have come out on that one, should I, Jim? All right. So 
So, I mean, I could give a list, a left brain list, but I don't need one. I don't need one. I like her. I love her. She's there every time I go home. It's fantastic. Okay? So, I don't need this series, uh, but I'm not doing it for me. As it turns out, my world is not the world. I know. And that there are some of you here who are going, but I live over here on the left. I'm coming for you. I'm pretty much right-leaning in everything. <laughs> well, one, thank you. <laughs> I'm here for you left-leaning people, okay? Wow. <laughs> okay. But the hard, I think the biggest challenge for me in this, in this series is that um, they, won't be, they won't be textual. They'll be topical. In other words, they're not a text. And you know what I do. I love to say, turn in your Bibles to this passage and we're going to do it. We're gonna, and I love that. Because for me, the Bible is a picture book. And the, the pictures just come. And I, so I like to stick in one spot and let's just talk about the pictures. Right? Right brain. And so for me, because of that, I won't be able to bring as much scripture and stuff to this. I'll bring, obviously, as much as I can. But it will be more of a rational presentation of, of the material. Okay? Yes or no? Okay. Well, today we want to do elephant number one. And that is, uh, are the Gospels a reliable historical record of the life of Jesus? I mean, can we count on the words of the Gospels to have actually happened? Well, why is this important? Well, first of all, we got to we got to say that historical reliability, even if we can prove it, does not prove that Jesus is who he says he was. That's a different question, right? All I'm saying is, can we say that the four Gospels that are in your Bible are historically reliable? Now, why is that important? It's because our whole eternity is built on our... Faith that Jesus did what he did, said what he said, right? I mean, we're not, if we don't have a historical basis for that having been true, then we're, we're in a heap of trouble if it's not true. If we're building our faith on a set of stories or myths that, are, that claim to be true but are not true, then we have a problem. So the question is a really good one. And so for those of you who are still kind of on the outside looking in, I get that. I get that. If you have questions about whether that stuff actually happened or not, that's an important question. Um, But another question as we move toward this stuff is that what do we mean by reliable? (laughs) At what point will we say, okay, it's reliable? Well, what I'm talking about is compared to other secular historical things, historical records about other things, can we have confidence that Jesus Christ lived, did the things, did exactly the things that he did, even though some of them are out there, and said the things that he said? So if we, if we apply the same set of tests to the Gospels as we do to other things that we just really believe without question are historical. Can we, can we have confidence in the reliability of the Gospels? So, obviously, 
you're ahead of me. I'm planning to build a case for the reliability of the Gospels. There are so many reasons to, to embrace the Gospel record as historical. Um, I want to give you the top seven in my mind. And if you take them as a whole, I think you'll see that it does actually absolutely make the case. Um, probably no one of them by themselves is uh, adequate, but if you take these seven as a whole. I'm going to do them in David Letterman style. We'll start from seven and work our way up to what I consider to be the most compelling bit of evidence, okay? Uh, And the first ones will come fast, and then we'll slow down a little on the others. Reason number seven Uh, The reliability of the Gospels is validated by the many accounts of its power to change the lives of those who make the choice to believe it. So, what am I saying? So the Gospels say, as as a piece of literature, that if you believe, you will have life in his name. That's what John says. These things are written so that you will have life, and that by believing, you will have life in his name. Now, just by a show of hands... How many of you could say that because you have made a choice to believe the words of the gospel, you have found a sense of life in his name? Okay, just look around. So, so many, many hands are up. And I'm not even asking you to describe what you mean by that. But I'm, I'm just saying that it, it's common for people who say, yeah, I made the choice to believe it, and now I have, man, something's different. Something's different. And this life could mean a lot of different things, right? Jesus said that if we believe in him, that, that springs of living water will well up from within us. Is there anybody in the room who could attest to that, that there's something going on inside of you? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's just, you can't necessarily describe it, but it certainly would fit a spring of living water. It's certainly true of me that a spring of living water is welled up inside of me. So we could just kind of go through the Gospels And we could say, well, here's what Jesus said would happen if we believe. Has it happened? And in this room, hundreds of you raised your hand. In in history, billions of people would raise their hand that, that it has power to change lives. It has power, in other words, to do what it says it will do. And so there is one one case, one point that causes us to say, maybe this stuff is reliable, is historically reliable. Number six, the reliability of the Gospels is validated by the great lengths, including martyrdom, people have gone to preserve them. People have died in defense of the Gospel as being true. Who does that? Who does that? If someone came up to you and held a gun to your head and said, you must deny that Alexander the Great lived when he lived and did what he did. You must deny that. Would you take a bullet for that? I wouldn't. I'd say, yeah, probably never here. Probably was never here. But how many countless thousands, millions of people in a variety of situations, when pressed with the same question, you deny the reality of Jesus Christ or die, they say stuff like, you know, you can kill me, but you can't hurt me. 
And they've died defending the truthfulness, the reliability of the gospel. Reason number five, the reliability of the gospels is validated by the fact that they've been so carefully and well preserved for more than 2,000 years. We have other records, historical records from antiquity uh, in that same era that were also preserved. Why were they preserved? Because they were true. Can you imagine the, 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 the amount of stuff that's been written that wasn't preserved? Because it wasn't important. It wasn't true. And so, as a human race, we, we preserve, we protect the, the parts that we say, we got to hang on to this. This is true. And for more than 2,000 years, the gospel records have been preserved as other historical records of antiquity, antiquity have been preserved. May not make the whole case for you, but we're starting to build a little list here, aren't we? Reason number four, the reliability of the Gospels is validated by the archaeological evidence that supports its contents as literature. So when you read about Jesus was here, Jesus did that, there's, there's support for that in archaeology, that as digs continue and as we continue to see that this was here and that was there, that there's scientific Archaeology is a science. Scientific evidence that those structures, those places, were real places in place at the time that Jesus said and did the things that he said and did. And so that supports it. There's nothing, there's nothing that contradicts it that goes, hmm, well, there wasn't even a Sea of Galilee or there wasn't even a, you know, whatever where Jesus would have been that that would contradict any of the contents of the Gospels. And this is, this is what we do when we're checking out the reliability of any historical record. We look at the archaeology and say, does that support it? And remember, all I'm trying to do here is say, outside of faith, what does this thing look like? Reason um, number three, the reliability of the Gospels is validated by the fact that its contents is confirmed by countless numbers of extra-biblical accounts from people who lived at the time and immediately after the time. So when historians look at records, they see this record, and one of the ways that they, that they evaluate it is say, what other stuff do we have around this record that was written that's not in the record that supports that? Okay. And so not just the newspaper article, but what about, oh, look at this, look at this letter from Lincoln. You know, look at this, this and that. And so these kinds of things then um, either deny or they corroborate the historical account. And we have hundreds of thousands of letters from the time of sermons from the time in the first two centuries Hundreds of thousands of records that refer to the content of the Gospels and validate the contents of the Gospels. So we have all these, we call them extra-biblical. That is stuff that's outside of the Bible. And we have an, an unnumbered 
uh, list of these documents that support and corroborate the, the account of the Gospels. Is that making sense? Okay. Uh, reason number two, uh, the, the reliability of the Gospels is validated by the relative age of the remaining supporting documents. Now, it makes sense, doesn't it, that a document that you have now is of more value depending on how close it was to the actual time, right? So if, if like, you don't have a, a, an actual document in your hand for a thousand years after the event, you might start to get nervous, right? Because a lot can happen in a thousand years. And so one of the tests that's applied to historical documents is saying, okay, so we're saying this document is historical if it's not the original... For example, our Declaration of Independence is the original. We've got that. Um, but if it's not the original, how, how much time elapsed between the original and the one we have in our hands? And so the closer, the better, right? Are you feeling that? Okay. Um, the new, in the New Testament, we have no copies of the original Gospels. But we do have copies of the Gospels that are with, this is going to sound like a long time until I tell you the rest of the story, within a hundred years, within a hundred years of the originals. And so hold that in your, in your mind. We have copies of the Gospels that are less than a hundred years older than the original Gospels themselves, okay? Now, compare that to Homer, not Homer Simpson, but... <laughs> Homer of Antiquity, the Iliad, anybody ever read it? Seven of us, okay. Um, that's too many, is that right? Wow, you should go. With the documents that we have, the, the documents that we have that we consider to be, the, this is the Iliad, for example, the, the oldest one is 500 years after Homer would have written it. I'm just using it as a, as a comparison. Now, does anybody doubt the historicity of Homer? And yet, the oldest document we have is 500 years after him. Anybody ever hear of Aristotle or Plato? Are these, not Plato. <laughs> these were Greek philosophers of a long time ago. So, put them in time. The oldest documents that we have that reflect their original writings are 1,200 years after they wrote. And yet, nobody's going to shout you down for quoting Plato, are they? Nobody's going to say, well, that guy wasn't even real. Are you feeling this? So it's the relative age of the documents that we have from a historical standpoint. I think the number one reason from this approach that we can count on the reliability of the Gospels is that the reliability of the Gospels is validated by the vast number of corroborating documents. So the number of separate accounts or fragments of the Gospels, for example, or of any historical document that come together and say, yeah, that thing really happened. So, for example... With uh, Julius Caesar, has anybody ever heard of Julius Caesar? 
and the Gallic Wars. Anybody know of this? We have nine documents. Nine documents that support that and that put together with the other evidence cause us to say that's an historically reliable idea. We have nine, okay? Um, And you've heard of Aristotle. We have 49 documents that come together and say, yeah, Aristotle was who he said he was. Um, When we look at Homer again, we have 12 documents that come together. And I don't think there's anybody in this room who's going to doubt the historicity of those three cats, right? Um, Julius Caesar, you'd expect more, right? We have 2,000. We have 2,000, upwards of 2,000 documents that fit together to create the historical portrait. No question about these individuals. In this regard, the New Testament suffers by embarrassment. We have over 40,000 pieces of fragments that work together that corroborate the reliability of the Gospels. 40,000. Now I just told you that the Gallic Wars are supported by nine and taught in our history books as though they were gospel, right? We have 40,000. Some people argue, yeah, but many of those were translations. You're right. We only have 5,683 that were originally written in Greek. Hello? This stuff just creates a case from a historical testing point of view. Is this making sense to anybody? When we apply these same tests of historicity to the New Testament as we do the other events that we readily accept as history, then we have more reason to believe in the reliability of the Gospels than we do in the very existence of Julius Caesar. These are the kinds of tests that we apply. And it's how we decide if something is historical, right? No one can prove history. On Friday night... 20 young adults were in our living room. That is an historical fact. We had a great time. I can't prove that. Jamie, you were there. Will you corroborate my story? Oh, she gives me this. Hello? I can't prove that. You have to decide if the source is credible. That's what we do with all of history. But I want to I kind of leave you with this, if you're wondering about the reliability of the Gospels. And this is outside of the test set, and it requires you to use both sides of your brain. You right-brainers are going, oh, thank you. And I just want to ask you this, or, or say this to you, that the reliability of the Gospels is validated by the unreasonable and sometimes ferocious opposition it faces compared to other historical records. What is this... Where is this opposition coming from? Even as a sacred text. If you go into the break room and you open up the Quran and somebody says, what are you reading? Oh, I'm reading the Quran. Oh. You open up the Bhagavad Gita. You open up the works of Buddha. And they go, oh, how weird to be you. But you open up the Bible. 
And lines are immediately drawn, aren't they? How do you explain this mysterious opposition to the Bible and and the threat to its historicity compared to other books? Other than Satan himself. Satan himself wants to deny the truth. He's the author of lies. Why is it that people just... Their back gets up as soon as you talk about the Bible. I love it when they say to me, well, I might believe the Bible except for all the contradictions in it. I love that question. Because I love to follow up with, yeah, I know what you mean. Which one bothers you the most? (laughs) Well, I'm not talking specifics here, but... Beloved, listen, I, I hope this has been helpful. This is weird because I don't know what to do now. I guess we're, we're going to get ready to go home is what we're going to do here. So just so you know where we where, where are. We? There you go. F.F. Bruce. <laughs> Thank you. You know, at the end of the day, we have to realize something. The Bible was written to the hearts of men, not their heads. The reason for that is because up until a few hundred years ago, God had our heads. What he wanted was our hearts. Jesus said, your religion is but rules made up by men, but your hearts are far from me. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. A few hundred years ago, we decided that the head was more important than the heart. I get that we want to answer the questions of the head. I get it. They're important questions. But at the end of the day, you are not going to analyze your way into a relationship with Jesus. You're not going to do it. You've got to take this big leap of faith. Jump into his arms. Then it defines your whole existence. Have a great week.